So we are in the throes of March Madness, and sadly, I do not mean a competition about the March sisters. I believe there is basketball occurring. Is that correct? There is sure basketball is occurring. It's our time. Okay, so it's Women's History Month. It won't be by the time you hear this, but it it is a Women's History Month eternal in our hearts. That's right. So with that, I flipped open this book, which is about Marie Grace ostensibly, but it got me thinking... What if from a Sweet 16, we had a kind of March Madness Final Four just of characters from Marie Grace? Wow, that truly is an Elite Eight, you might say. I don't know how many of them are in Is she in your top four? Who, Marie Grace? Yes. Sadly, no. So of her family, and family is being defined very broadly here, we have Argos, the dog, Sister Beatrice, Mm -hmm. who I think doesn't know Marie Grace from A Hole in the Wall, her friend, um, Cecile Ray, Mademoiselle Oshan, who is, I would say, not family yet, but perhaps soon. Lavinia, who's not even a friend. Mrs. Curtis, Uncle Luke, and Papa. Who's who's making that top four of these nine? This is a really tough, this is a tough competition. And I just, you know, this is tough. I know who's your number one. Who's my number one? Mrs. Curtis <laughs> with Sister Beatrice mm-hmm. in a close second. Yep. And I'm going to put Argos in fourth yep. just because Papa's not even no, making top no, ten. No, he's sure not. Um, I'm going to exclude Cecile, but she would be in my top four. I feel like if I'm not having Marie Grace, it's unfair to have Cecile. Like, that's <laughs> cruel. I'm going to take Lavinia for truly the most, like, from nowhere pointless cameo and just sort of queen behavior and miss excludes me from this narrative during this narrative. So I think that's yeah. somewhat iconic. So I'm taking them as my top, my final four. I love it. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still making a difference. I'm Allison. Wow. Wow. At least one of us is. And God bless. How are you still, Allison, or making a difference? You know, I don't make a lot, but I do like to think I make a difference by, you know, reading and sharing these books. So, you know, I've been pretty deep into my subscription to investigation discovery shows, which mostly revolve around themes of community misfortune. Mm -hmm. And I've been using that actually as a break to get away from these plot lines. I think that's fair. Sidebar, I read that Hillsong, there's a three-part Hillsong documentary on Discovery Plus. Have you seen that? I have not, but it is definitely top of my list. There's some good things that are coming out. Hmm. Erin Lee Carr, who is a favorite of yours and mine, recently came out with a documentary about the woman who disappeared in the submarine in Europe. That is a high recommend. That is very interesting. That's a two-parter. Erin Lee Carr, just when you think she's resting, Mm-mm, she's not. She's not. She is a submarine. She's like, boop. I think she's consistently very good. Um, yes, she is. Yeah, I will definitely watch that. And I really want to see the Hillsong thing. So you need to watch that too and we can chat about it. But um, yes. that sounds interesting. What else are you up to? What else have you seen that you would recommend? I know that you're watching Bridgerton. Yes, I've completed that cycle. <laughs> I mean, I have a weird, like, you know... I enjoyed it. Like, have you seen, did you see season one? 
So I'm in a different corner of Shondaland mm-hmm. in that I have been very slowly watching the Anna Delvey inventing Anna. Yes. Very slowly. It is nine hours. And I kind of feel like she confused Anna Karenina for Anna Delvey and was like, I need to make it as I have an important... Okay, I didn't know you were watching that. I'm throwing my fist down as a gavel. I have important statements to make about that miniseries. You didn't know this about me. Okay, I told you off air the last week of my life has been somewhat hellish because I basically had the flu and I had pink eye in both eyes. My eyes were swollen shut and then I had to get a new medical treatment for one of my health issues on Friday, which was a success. So that's good. But... I spent most of last week in bed and it was the thing that for allowed me. It was like a gift. Illness is never a gift, but I did watch a lot of TV in a very short amount of time. I listened to the beginning of Inventing Anna because my eyes were swollen oh. shut at that time. So I can't speak to the visuals. I did, I was able to see maybe episode three on. I watched that in a fever dream, Allison, and I have a lot of feelings yeah. about that. It's like Shondaland, the Shondaland vibe, watching that and then immediately watching Bridgerton. Here's what I've taken from this. Shonda Rhimes, one of her key core arguments that I have not appreciated before because it doesn't really enter into Grey's Anatomy is that she really believes or her crew believes that feminism means that women get to be scammers too. Yes. Like that's a core thing, I think, in both things. And that sort of goes off the rails for me because, like, I'm not sure that's what my feminism looks like. I mean, I celebrate women being able to scam. Like, congratulations. I just read today a woman scammed Yale University out of $40 million of electronics that she was reselling. Uh, I don't know if that's what it's all about, but that's that's that was my takeaway of inventing Anna. Like, they really wanted to redeem her in ways where I was like, I don't know that we actually have to like her as a person. I think part of the notion behind a lot of these things is like in the world of Bridgerton or in the like early 20th century world of inventing Anna, it's like there are bad actors and many of them are male and they are holding a lot of the cards. And this woman is disrupting that and this woman is kind of changing the narrative. But much like Martha Stewart being sentenced to prison for something that lots of other men Mm -hmm. do all of the time, insider trading, also members of Congress just saying... I'm not really sure that Martha's redemption has come from us celebrating her doing an act that really isn't ethical. I think it's come from, one, her friendship with Snoop Dogg, and two, like, other modes of redemption. Mm -hmm. So I'm also finding that Inventing Anna is maybe kind of focusing on the parts that I find less interesting. And I think it's also just weird at this cultural moment that you actually get a pretty good insight into what it might mean if you haven't experienced it, which I haven't, to visit someone at Rikers. Mm. And she would have been making this right when there was a lot of conversation about a final closure of Rikers. And it's sort of strange that part of the arc in the buildup a lot in a lot of episodes is sort of the difficulties that white people or people of privilege have in kind of schlepping out to Rikers and then having the experience of visiting someone in a prison. And that feels kind of like a strange move. It does feel like a strange move. I I just, yeah, I agree with you, especially about like the Martha Stewart connection and like never forget she's also a Leo. So I'm not going to say anything oh. unkind about her. And she has been very publicly critical 
of the carceral state, especially when she appeared on The Ellen Show, which like is itself part of the carceral state. So um, so that's fine. But I just feel like there's something that goes on your right where it's like women get in trouble for doing things men do every day. And that's a problem. But I don't know that the, the response or the way we tell stories about that is to be like, and there we have to like them and like we must redeem them. I just think there's something odd about that. And it's inter- it's more interesting to just let them be how they are. Like, I think that's why Christina is yeah. the best character on Grey's Anatomy, because no one's trying yeah. to redeem her or like make her choices more palatable to people who might not understand them. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll be interested to hear what you think. What episode are you on of Inventing Anna? I'm not even halfway. There's so a part it's... where they get into her fashion looks, which I didn't really know much about this going in. I did read the article when it came out, but I kind of forgot about it. And they're like, oh, my God, like her fashion courtroom looks. <laughs> and she comes in in a white dress. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but she's doing Emily Dickinson cosplay. Like, what are yeah. we? And again, I mean, I'm sitting here in, in a sweatshirt on top of a sweatshirt because I'm freezing. So I'm not fashion plate, but... Maybe I shouldn't speak to that, but I mean, I'm just saying that's my two cents. I am wearing a Life is Good t-shirt. And yes. hear me out. Is it? I own many of these. Okay. I own many of these. I like the cotton blend. I like that. I'm wearing my first sweatshirt is a sweatsuit. I'm wearing <laughs> my, first my first sweatshirt. I don't know if you can see this. I'm wearing a sweatsuit. Oh. It matches. I can now. Sorry. <laughs> I'm showing you too no. much. And it's like there's this Target brand that's like Sea and Star or something like that. But they have Mm. these sweatsuits that are the softest fabric in the world. And like these are my indoor sweatsuits. Like I don't wear these out. And I am wearing another sweatsuit on top of this, a sweatshirt. So like I'm not sure if I'm okay right now, but that's where I'm at. So you had kind of a Mademoiselle Ocean week last week, if I may. Yes. I mean, maybe I made the cardinal mistake of not asking a nine-year-old to care for me. Um, you know, bring me ice chips. Maybe that would have turned the corner for me faster. I don't know, Allison. Like, and I just have to say, like, going back to March Madness for a second, this will be coming out after the championship in the women's tournament, which just real talk is better than the men's. Like, just putting that out there. If UConn doesn't win, like, I worry about myself. Oh, okay. UConn just played NC State two nights ago. It was one of the best basketball games I've ever seen in my life. It went into double overtime, first time in the women's tournament. There was a double overtime. I was, like, screaming. My heart was racing. I was, like, drenched in sweat. It was like I had played this game by the time it was over. (laughs) And I'm just like, this is – I'm like, why do I care about this? What am I doing? Anyway, they're in the final four. I don't really think they're going to win the whole thing, but I'm proud of them for making it this far. It's just – it's – it's been an emotional roller coaster. That's all I can say. That's all I've watched is Bridgerton inventing Anna – I also watched Summer House for the first time. I'm interested in where that's going. I don't know. Maybe I'll like never watch TV again after this, like for a couple months. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, speaking of a lot, do we dare? Let's do it. Let's get into it. I'm scared, but let's do it. So we are on book five, which after the kind of shift in types, this is not a saves the day book, which is something we've experienced now with both Kaya and Caroline. So this is a little bit different. We're back on Marie Grace. We're back in in her world. So here's what we learn. Line one, Marie Grace is worried. Yellow fever is raging through New Orleans. The orphanage where she and Cecile have been volunteering is becoming crowded with children who have lost their parents to dreadful disease. 
And now, someone Marie Grace cares about is terribly ill. When the chance comes to help, Marie Grace takes it. She knows she can make a difference, but will this horrible fever cause Marie Grace to lose the home and family she loves? Includes an illustrated looking back essay about health and medicine in the 1800s. I want to do a fact check Mm -hmm. right away. Marie Grace takes the chance. Will this horrible fever cause Marie Grace to lose the home and family she loves? I was just going to say. Here is what is actually causing that. A central crisis that runs through this book is the fact that Marie Grace's dad is completely MIA, no one ever has eyes or ears on him, and this family's entire communication toolkit is one chalkboard. (laughs) One. (laughs) And I was just going to say, you can't lose a thing you don't have, girl. Right? I'm sorry, (laughs) but your dad is like, he is creating, like, you are going to be poster child for, like, girl with daddy issues in a couple years because this man is not a good parent. No. So we open on what kind of feels like a fun gab session between uh, Marie Grace and Cecile, and we kind of get some insight into them having some conversation. And I think that's to lull us into a false sense of security because we're about to be plunged into a sick room for about 55 (laughs) pages. We're going to have to worry if Marie Grace is being taken away. And I'm using that word deliberately. And then as if we haven't been punished enough, we cut to a wedding that I never thought would happen. You know, it's interesting because you think studying the history of medicine, you've seen it all or you've seen a lot. And this book taught me something else, which is that, you know, I didn't know this, Allison, but planning someone's wedding unsolicited is a therapeutic (laughs) technique. Yes, yes. I think that was kind of an interesting choice. And I think it was actually, it stood out because it was a rare moment where the nineness of Marie Grace and Cecile really comes through. They learn that their shared beloved music teacher is not doing well. And in response, they decide that they're going to keep planning her wedding to Luke. Luke's boyfriend doesn't know about this. So they're like, we have to keep all of this going. Something I find very disorienting about this series, partially because we're going back and forth, We were so in Armand's world, that being Cecile's brother, I felt like I knew what kind of paintbrushes Armand wanted Mm -hmm. for his recovery. He is dropped like a hot potato out of the back window, and here we are in what feels like both the same month, but in this completely different world. Yeah, we're told that the we ended the last book with them going to the cathedral for the the prayer for Thanksgiving, like the citywide yes. service. And that was like three or four days previous to the start of this book. Yes. So we're dropped in like almost immediately continuous with that story. But like you're saying, it's like we're in another universe right now. There is a casual reference to Armand. And then there's an even more casual reference to Ellen, RIP. And they're like, yeah, wow, she's dead. Um, She's really dead. Can't believe it. She's passed. And then they're like, anyway, back to Madame Ocean. And then in a very nine-year-old way, as you're saying, they basically start debating. And I think that's a real human impulse of like someone you care about is in trouble. They're sick. And you're just so desperate to help them that you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. I need to act. What can I do right now? And I do think it's very sweet that as nine-year-olds are like, we need to kind of give her something to live for, basically. Or like, that's the implicit motivation (laughs) so they decide to plan her wedding basically or like take some steps to plan it 
Marie Grace does have doubts as to the efficacy of this. Marie Grace is like, she's like a lot of people on Twitter where she says, you know, like, I've read all the clinical trials. I am an epidemiologist. I'm not sure this is going to work. And she has this moment of self-reflection where she says, wedding plans won't help Mademoiselle get well. She quickly kind of ditches that anyway and decides that along with Cecile, they can not only be caretakers to orphans, they can step up, they can run a wedding planning enterprise. This part of the series to me very much feels like an extension of late 1990s, early kind of millennial film culture, thinking of things like It Takes Two. Mm where two young people, when they put their minds together, can do anything. They can make adults fall in love. They can arrange marriages. They can get new siblings. They can kind of contrive just about anything. They can go to Wall Street. Remember Blank Check? grew up. I remember Blank Check. I'm thinking of The Color of Friendship, which essentially argued that the Apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission needed to be run by 12-year-old girls. Oh, wow. We kind of got this message of you can do it in like this very specific way and i think kind of riding on the high of obama's first administration this book kind of comes in and says if these two had been in charge of yellow fever you know no i mean it never it never would happen it's like murky mark saying if i'd been on the plane 9-11 wouldn't have happened like wouldn't have happened would not have happened it's just it's also stunning that in their imagined plannings like cecile is like listen i've been to an extremely fancy wedding so I yes. will tell you what a really good wedding needs. And it's like huge flower arrangement, taller than both of us. And then they both basically compromise on the fact that they're like, and of course we should ask Mademoiselle to sing at her own wedding. And it's like, this <laughs> yes. woman is like, per, like so far as we know at this point, like could be on her deathbed. And they're like, and we will of course ask her to perform at her own wedding. Yeah, and so what do you think dad is actually doing? We learn his name is Thaddeus. Dr. T, what is he actually up to? Nothing good. I mean, we're told that there's a chalkboard outside his house where patients are scribbling, like, all caps, come now, like, with their address, you know, when they need help because everyone has it. And, you know, she basically is like, my dad leaves very early in the morning and I never see him until very late at night. And because she's embarrassed basically at some point to admit that she can't talk to, she doesn't know how her dad's doing or can't talk to him because she never sees him. What he's doing when he's away is an open question. Is this man trading in, you know, hackneyed cures that he's peddling, you know, during this Mm. epidemic? Is he caring for people at the level he was caring for Armand in the last book? So he's like literally spending the night in other strangers' homes trying to work stuff out. Like, I don't know where this man is. And he's also (laughs) not at the infirmary because when we go there later, it's not like he's been spending time at that place. No, we know that he's both absolutely essential to New Orleans tackling this. Yes. No one can seem to get eyes or ears on him. I'm actually really concerned that he's not even charging anyone. So this family is about to go under. Doing some outside research, this is the summer purportedly when potato chips are invented. Oh my God. And all I want to say is like, I don't feel as though considering 1853 gives us Levi Strauss and potato chips. I just think our eyes are on the wrong thing. Why why aren't the books about that? I mean, I still... Where's Franklin Pierce? I, I can't. Perhaps America's hottest 19th Pierce? century president next to James Garfield. <laughs> I mean, what's Franklin Pierce doing? What's his wife up to? 
where are the potato chips and where's Levi Strauss? And more importantly, and more to the point, can anyone connect us with the Levi Strauss organization, get us a sponsorship, free jeans, <laughs> and perhaps a job as their archivist? I will never let go of the fact that we saw their archivist once present. And I was like, this is my dream job. She was like, I wear jeans every day. And I'm like, this is my dream. Like, you. I did reach out to them. This is actually the response I got. They said, you can leave a message at the slate. <sighs> Allison, you just... I, after this past week, I'm willing to believe anything. Like, my guard is still down. I just... <laughs> I'm... You know, I I would have loved to have had some potato chips as medicine in this book, as, like, yes. the therapeutic practice. We all know the therapeutic power of having some potato chips, like when you're just like, I'm in a place and I need a chip. Like, what is your preferred chip flavor? Doritos. Oh. Last week, had a bad headache, okay. was not feeling good. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get up because I have extended daylight, okay. you know, because of the changes that we undergo this time of year. I got up. I walked to my 7-Eleven, which is my place of choice. I do have choices. I bought the mega bag of Doritos. And this is how I process nutrition for me right now. As long as I'm walking, I can have the Doritos. Oh, okay. So there has to be some evening out in your head to justify it. There doesn't have to be, but I actually just really like the pleasure of a Dorito in the fresh air in the light of day. And so then I also get a Diet Dr. Pepper just because that's my preferred. No one was here to get me ice. That's part of this. Like, I think if I had had someone to get me ice, it would have okay. pulled me through. Interesting. I mean, see... I actually don't like ice, but... Yeah, I was going to say, I've never... I've always seen you order soda or a drink sans ice. So I think that would no be... Ice. I mean, that's sort of part of the problem. Like, we're spreading germs that way. But <laughs> it's... I would love a Cape Cod barbecue chip or a regular Cape Cod chip, or a baked Cheeto. I mean, I'll eat any, I mean, almost any kind of chip I'm here for, but that all has medicinal powers. I feel like any, a potato chip would do more than any actual medicine that Dr. Tad or AK Dad (laughs) might be applying to anyone in this world. So if you're wondering why we're not going through this in a linear way, it's because this really is kind of like a trauma trip into just like learning that more people are ill. You feel like we're never going to get out and then we snap into a wedding. That said, being completely serious, I was giving a lot of thought and reflection to the way that this series of these two women is paced Mm -hmm. and the way that as part of this shift around the time of Kaya and others, I feel very tightly focused on them trying to teach us about a summer or a cluster of seasons and something I really loved and appreciated about the original series And I'm thinking of Kirsten for some reason. I loved watching her grow over like a year and a half. I loved going through multiple seasons with her. And I feel very trapped in this summer with them. And the fact that we've had two books or two sets of books now basically very tightly focused on a matter of weeks. The Civil War didn't feel that daunting. That's 100% true. And in a weird way, it's like, the environment is creating or mirroring the feeling of being in these books, which is like, it feels claustrophobic. Yeah. Like the city itself has a lot of humidity. We're in the summer now. People constantly talking about how hot it is, how humid it is. And of course, like running through that is the fear that the environment is what's causing 
Um, a lack of sanitation is what's causing the yellow fever outbreak, which is not really what's going on, but they don't know that. And so you're reading it and you're like, whoa, I feel, I too feel caught. Like I'm imagining what it would feel like to be in her house when it's the middle of July and it's super humid and hot and you feel like, you know, really claustrophobic or just like trapped. And that's how I feel in these books. Like I too would love to escape New Orleans right now and get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, it just feels like a very, very close focus on 1853, but also something I appreciated about other series, and I think it's just not always possible to do, and at times it did feel kind of like, okay, I see what you're doing there. When we were kind of wrapping up the Josefina series, and she's meeting kind of outsiders in a way that she hasn't before, right? Like, we've seen her meet other people, but she meets traders, she meets other folks. There's all these kinds of moments where we can see as readers, and not just because we're adults, but as people who know what's coming, that the place that she calls home is going to be very different in years to come. And I think this is interesting that it is so tightly focused on this year And part of me can't help but think, you would have no sense that this country is going to erupt into a civil war within the decade. And I think that's a fascinating choice because a place like New Orleans is consequential, right, in that. And we kind of had this beginning conversation where it was like, oh, she's both an outsider and an insider. These moments where she's picnicking with Cecile or the two of them have taken it upon themselves to like be the social catch-all that they want to see it's really bizarre yeah it it's very strange it seems like um the racial politics of the books have dropped out in a big way where now cecile and marie grace are just hanging out as equals as helpers in this orphanage for white children that they've previously Mm. like scammed to get baby philip in who's now in chicago So we open with them basically feeding the kids, playing with them in the yard, bringing them in for their midday meal. And then these two go outside to have a picnic. And Marie Grace is like, I couldn't possibly eat. I'm too stressed out, which is a thing I've literally never felt in my life. But okay, so then, you know, Marie Grace, they're like talking about Madame Ocean. They think like planning her wedding might be helpful, even though they're not going to like share that with her. And there's just this feeling of unknowing. But in all of that and through the books, what's been interesting to me is charting like what's dropped out is the racial politics and any real open conversation about what's causing the pandemic and what might lead it to end. Like what might end it? So if you're living in this world that's really claustrophobic and you're so worried about people in your life, like the pandemic is encroaching into your own network, it's, you know, Alan's dead, et cetera. I would think there would even just be casual questions about like, so what do you think is causing this? When do you think this will be over? (laughs) And I, I can guess that because we're living in a time when I'm doing that. Like I'm thinking that as a person who's an adult living through whatever year of COVID at this point being like, when is this gonna end? And like, what is what is causing the spread and how do we finally stop this? No one, no adult, no child, no one in this world is curious about that. No, and something I really picked up on in this book, especially when we were in Cecile's world, there was a sense that she and others needed to change their caretaking roles because of Armand's illness and also because of Ellen's illness and that that really disrupted the family. But that family in particular had this almost automatic deference to doctors, right? We need doctors to come in. We need them to provide treatment and doctors will kind of assist with this situation. 
I find Marie Grace's transition from child to child caretaker to semi-pro nurse, like in in the matter of ultimately a hundred pages, to be really kind of interesting. Because when you get towards the back of the book, and I think this is kind of a telling insight into how this was written, there's a lot of back and forth language about what makes a nurse in the 19th century. Is this just a person who happens to be taking care of someone? Or is this a professional and who gets to decide? And I think in this series, I'm really not just picking on Marie Grace. I think they're playing fast and loose with like who has any legitimate basis to be taking care of someone. And with what goes on where she's taking care of Mademoiselle, you actually learn that part of what makes Marie Grace a really qualified nurse is that she has insider information. She learns from Lavinia that ice is being delivered and that's something that patients want. And that's ultimately what makes her a great nurse to this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not only like there's obviously this gendered history with nursing that women were allowed to be nurse because they, there was this perceived, like, well, women are better nurturer, caretaker types. So that's one perceived, like, strength to being a nurse or, like, qualification. But I think there's also this sense of, like, being able to navigate bureaucracy and to keep order. That's really important to being a nurse. And because she has an insider intel and knows when to use it, you know, that's, that seems to qualify her. But it's very strange that we get to that moment because she goes home from the orphanage after her playtime with Argos. And she's like, hey, guys, I'll be back when I can. School's sort of starting, maybe. And Uncle Luke shows up after a stranger <laughs> comes in with a massive pot of jambalaya as a thank you to her dad, who, again, is practically in the witness protection program. No one knows where he is. And Uncle Luke's like, oh, my God, like, you know, Madame Ocean, like, she's taking a turn. Where's dad? Like, I need to bring him to her right now. And she's like, no idea. Don't see him. And he's like, OK, well, I need to find a nurse. And then he points to the neighbor who brought the jambalaya. And he's like, you. <laughs> Are you free? And she's like, um, like my children are just getting over yellow fever. Like I can't possibly leave them. And he's like, whatever. And she was like, but I know a free black woman of color that you can pay. And he's like, great. Can I get her address? Like, I'll go there right now. No questions asked. She's had good results. Like there's some weird phrase the woman uses as like a reference. Mm -hmm. And then Marie Grace is like, but what about me? Like, I'm right here. And the most amazing moment in this book is that at no time is Uncle Luke like, you're a nine-year-old girl. And even yep. if I believe that you're immune because you've survived it, I'm not going to ask you to do this. Because even if you could be a nurse, like the tra the potential trauma of you going into, like Madame O'Shea's been moved from her home to like, I guess what had been a ballroom that's now like a kind of citywide infirmary for the pandemic. And he's like, any adult would be like, you're going to see a lot of stuff there. Yeah. So I'm not going to have you do this because even if you could do the job, the context would be, would like scar you for life. And instead he's like, huh, hmm. It's only a person who is actually staffing the infirmary site who raises a question as to whether she is a good fit and basically poses it as a threat saying, if you get ill or if you're uncomfortable, I'm going to be upset with you. So she decides she's going to repress what she's feeling. Ciara, who's written reviews of all of these books going back for a while says, I fail to see how it's a victory for Marie Grace to be essentially pressed into the role of orphanage matron at the age of 10 years old, or why she can't help with the kids and still live at home. 
Ciara, Leslie, and Katie are asking all the important questions, really not just about why Marie Grace seems to be busy with these things all of the time. Like, I'll be honest, like, you know, even Felicity had side interests. She had a guitar. Here we have this situation where she's like, my primary thing is trying to act as a mother to other children who don't have mothers. My secondary thing is nursing. I also do, like, performances on command. Katie writes, I'm side-eyeing the speed with which Dr. Gardner tries to send MG away. We're told it's 9 p.m. when they go home, so they do eventually reconnect, and he's like, you need to get out of here. And he says they're getting on a boat the next day. Wouldn't you want to wait a few days to let the relatives know that you're going to send her, or at least to expect her first? Dr. G does not care. Tad does not care at all. And there it's just, it's very telling that whole episode because when she arrives with Uncle Luke to be the nurse or whatever, there's like two stories. And the first story is for genteel ladies who want to do volunteer work to feel good, but not be close enough to potentially get sick. So Lavinia makes a from nowhere cameo. No one has (laughs) missed her as we covered in the last book. And she's like, excuse me, I'm bringing these like blankets from this side of the room to that side of the room. Like my job is extremely important. Please get out of my way. And she's the person who tells Marie Grace that ice has been delivered. But she's not going to get too close to the action. And I think that's a very important no. class detail that, you know, women of a certain station are willing to help, but only in ways that are not a direct threat to them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's real white lady savior type stuff. But it's also, like, a very class thing. Like, you want to do something charitable, but not actually get hurt. And I think that's a transgression across class lines that's, like, well, Marie Grace is proving once again how she's not on Lavinia's level because she wants to go upstairs and she wants mm-hmm. to nurse Madame Ocean. And, you know, yes, she uses that knowledge of where the ice is to help Madame Ocean, but she there's no consciousness on her part that maybe it's not ladylike to appear as if you want to be a nurse because it's sort of stepping into this professional, quasi-professional role and of course, being maternal and a caretaker is woman's like, you know, central reason for being in this period, but privately, not professionally. Yeah. So I thought that was actually like a really interesting moment. And then the dad shows up. She gives ice chips to Madame Ocean. Tad shows up and it's from nowhere. Nurse is like, your dad's a saint. And it's like, why? Like, <laughs> what what has he been doing? And, and he's like, oh, my God, somebody left me. And he's like, I thought you were. And she's like, oops, like that neighbor lady wrote a note. And she just said I was at the infirmary. And he's like, yes, I thought you were. And it's like, nobody buys this, sir, because you have been letting this girl run ragged for a series. You have no, like, no one is at home with her because we didn't cover this, but Mrs. Curtis left town. <laughs> She woke up from a nap and was like, I'm catching a ship to Boston. I'm out of here because she's never had yellow fever. This girl has nobody now. And this has not bothered this man. But he's performing like, oh, my egads. I didn't know where you were. So now I'm sending you out of town to an undisclosed host. Like, we never even know who that is. It's probably his wife's family. No, and I'm sorry. I do feel like Kathleen Ernst would have been like, not only will I take you to the secondary location, I will invent a farm animal that you will fall in love with. And it will teach you a life lesson (laughs) and you'll make a really good friend. Yeah, I mean, it's like there would have been some motivation for her to go to that place as opposed to like, it's offered as a I want to get out of here. Yeah, 
I too want to I, escape town. Like Mrs. Curtis, can is room in your bunk? Like, can I get out of? Can I'll go to Boston? Like, that's fine. It's crazy. So about three quarters through this book, there is that moment, right, where he kind of realizes, like, all right, we had a close call here. I'm not paying attention to my nine slash ten year old at all. I didn't know where she was. I thought she might be sick. Lots of panic from Tad. He has this conversation with her, and I did actually think this was really cool writing, where Marie Grace is traveling back home with her father, and kind of like the clip-clop and the moving of the carriage, she hears him say, I'm proud of you, and that becomes a kind of song to her, where Mm. she hears it over and over, I'm proud of you, I'm proud of you, to the rhythm of them moving. And then he says, I'm sending you away, and there's like a record scratch in her brain where she's like, what now? And then for the whole rest of the ride, that changes to sending you away. I do think something kind of like fascinating about this book, Marie Grace, because she has so little parental guidance, hangs on every word that adults say to her. And it doesn't matter if it's her teacher, her uncle, her father. Um, She says a bit earlier in the book, Papa says a good nurse makes her patient as comfortable as possible. What is Papa saying about the fact that you seem to have two outfits? I'm serious. I feel yes. like he's not paying attention no. to any of her needs and we're kind of being swept up in this moment. And I do wonder if this was an attempt to sort of be like, this is what life was like before children had soccer. <laughs> I, yeah, I wonder. Or it's like, you know, if kids if kids are left to their own devices and we don't overschedule them and pamper them like they'll do something meaningful right and it's like maybe i mean to me it's like the two dresses thing it kind of feels like the curly sue moment of this book like did you ever see that movie curly (laughs) sue yes i love curly Sue. i love curly sue and i was like this is the curly sue moment where the dad's like ah because at the end when there's spoiler alert a wedding we are told that she squeezes her into shoes fancy shoes for the wedding that she's had and they're like pricking her feet or they're pinching her feet because she's too big for them and it's like yeah of course you're a whole year older at an age where that actually matters Mm -hmm. and I'm just like I know the dad is busy in the pandemic of it all and this and that but I don't know it's just like he knows that she's lost her mother and they have no other women in the family who are living with them and he didn't remarry yet wouldn't mm. you be like priority one? I'm gonna make sure that there's a housekeeper. If Mrs. Curtis is leaving, I'm gonna make some make sure somebody's here who can help her, or just make sure she's provided for with things I don't have time or knowledge to buy her. But Marie Grace, her sense of self is very much based on what she does for others. She yeah. says elsewhere in the book, talking with Cecile, Sister Beatrice needs us both. And my reply to that, my kind of side comment was like, does she really? Because I actually think part of what would have been happening there, there's this really kind of beautiful moment early on in this book where um, one of the little kids is kind of like zooming around and says, I'm flying, right? And is really excited Mm. and is having a good time. I actually wonder if Sister Beatrice is willing and interested in keeping these girls around. She probably figures nobody else is. I mean... Like, she sees that they're having fun by proxy, you know, because they're not... What other outlets does Marie Grace have for fun? Well, I was kind of wondering in that moment, I was like, is this the Shutter Island reveal of this book? (laughs) Right. Where she's like, oh, like, they think they're not members of this orphanage. Like, that's cute. Like, I let them think they help when really they two are orphans or whatever. It's, 
Yeah, and it, I think there's something going on with the, the line between being a Catholic nun and being a nurse. Yeah. And kind of like these these other ways of being a woman in the world that are not being married and a wife and a mother that I think are of interest to Marie Grace. Like she she's gravitating towards them out of need and out of interest. And I think in both of those cases, your life is defined by service for other people externally. And I just kind of wonder, like her religion is still mysterious to me. Like, I don't know if she's Catholic but are we supposed to like predict or are we left to imagine that maybe she will join the convent mm. and take over for Sister B when she reaches a retirement age? Or is she going to be, you know, one of the first professional nurses in New Orleans? So there's also the fact that if they had been a Catholic family that would have been notable in that part of Massachusetts that they're from and not notable in New Orleans. And we don't really know that. What was kind of surprising to me in the back of the book is they talk about how nursing as a profession doesn't really exist yet. And it doesn't exist until close to two decades later. And I think there's disagreement as to how important the Civil War is in terms of like Mm -hmm. professionalizing what we think of as nursing But I also kind of want to question that a little bit because we sort of have no sense that dad has a methodology or really that much training and he's just like man about town. And then we have these women about town and it's like, but they're not really professionals. Yeah. And I mean, that's an ongoing dichotomy going back in medicine forever. Like on our Patreon for March, we read um, Midwife's Apprentice and that being set in the medieval period, like the 1200s, I think. You know, these midwives are not licensed. They have a lot of folk knowledge from their own experience that trumps like trained physicians. And but yet, like in, you know, obstetrics still like midwives are demeaned because their expertise is not valued the same as a physician. And that's still true in this period, too, for all kinds of things. But I think you're right. Like, I think the Civil War, there's some debate about how much that matters. I think for my money, it's more about like the development of hospital structures, um, particularly Mm. in Boston, because, you know, hospitals develop in large part because there are strangers that show up in people's cities and they're like, uh, you know, before this, if I knew someone who was sick and stuck, like I would just take them in myself and I would care for them. But when we have all these immigrants and others moving into town, we need a place for strangers. And that's where hospitals come from. And as hospitals develop by like the 1860s and 70s, particularly in Boston and New England um, Hospital for Women and Children, that's where there's the first ostensibly like professional training program for nurses in the United States, drawing on Florence Nightingale, who they reference and peek into the past. But in all those cases, like it's really experience that's the biggest teacher, but they kind of professionalize that with a certification. So, I mean... All to say, like, nursing is not does not have as old a history as people probably imagine. Okay, but while this book is being set, again, we have Levi Strauss, we have potato chips, mm-hmm. we also have Commodore Perry in Japan. We, wow. we have a lot going on. Okay. And we have the Florence Nightingale actually being in communication and training in France with Sisters of Mercy, Catholic country, it's all I'm going to say. So... <laughs> I do think that it all comes around. I want to recommend as some reading something that came up in 2020. 
it was like looking toward um, a huge anniversary of Florence Nightingale. A website called Nursing Clio did a kind of retrospective and a really interesting roundtable on why Florence Nightingale shouldn't be the only representation of nurse history. And I actually looked up letters of like what exactly Florence had going on in this summer. She had a very particular kind of obsession with sanitation that was very much rooted in race. And I know that that's something that I hadn't really learned about until I saw kind of this conversation happening very recently. I think she's very much in some ways like rightfully held up as kind of this data-driven professional. But then you learn that a lot of that data-driven aspect of her is rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a lot to kind of check out there. And that website, people gave them a lot of pushback and they got a lot of negative commentary on the fact that they seem to be sort of taking Florence Nightingale on. And I think whenever there's someone who's becoming sort of an angel in a profession, you have to ask hard questions, right? It's like, well, why can't we talk about this person? That's never really a good thing. Yeah, there's been a lot of pushback against her in the past like two decades. The BBC as well has made two documentaries about her in which they called out in particular the supposed innovations that she developed during the Crimean War. Um, But I mean, for my mind too, she was willing to work with anyone but you had to play by her rules. So she did have two different orders of nuns who traveled to work with her, one of whom subjected themselves to her authority and they were, quote, friends for life. And the other one was like, no thanks. And she was like, you gots to go. Like, I'm in charge here. And there was a Jamaican nurse, like a nurse of color who came to the Crimea and wanted to work with her. And she badmouthed her big time, even though she was hugely popular and effective. And she spread all these rumors that was like, well, she makes all the patients drunk and all of this other stuff. And it was like, you know, there's a lot of race, a lot of racism in her personal papers and in the way that she made decisions. But a lot of it's about hierarchy. And, yeah. you know, at the same time, she's exposed to the same critiques of people who question her expertise because it was mostly experiential. Yeah. I mean, some of us, when we took math at our liberal arts college, took uh, visual graphical literacy. So some of us studied her Crimean stuff extensively because we took math that was learning how to read charts. Sure. Yeah, I should have taken that one. I took good judgment and decision making, (laughs) which showed that I had none because it was way more involved than I thought. But yeah, I mean... I think, like, it's fair to say that she was really innovative in data visualization and in development of how we think about public health and about nursing, because it's like, you know, imagine nursing is emerging as a profession. Like, what are nurses' jobs? Like, what is a nurse supposed to do? And she lays out in very easy-to-read terms. Like, her books are, you know, published for the public and describe, like, you know, what you should read to a patient or like how you should, you know, what kind of lighting should be in a room with a patient, how you should treat it, all these minute things that no one had really thought about. So, I mean, she's hugely, and she also gives her blessing to the program, the people who start the program in the U.S. So like her influence is really broad. But as you're saying, when someone's made a saint, not unlike Dr. Tad, you do have to ask questions. We're also kind of recording this in a really exceptionally strange moment because if you follow what's been happening at Vanderbilt, the hospital down south, um, 
there is a woman who committed a medical error and she immediately followed all due process that she committed a medical error that did prove fatal for her patient. But she followed the process. She lost her license. She went through all of these kinds of consequences. And what's ultimately happened is charges were brought against her and she was found guilty in a court of law. So she is now being held um, personally responsible and criminally responsible beyond the kind of professional and personal consequences that she's already faced. Um, And it's kind of this really strange moment where we lived through a few years of much like Tad kind of hollow rhetoric about people being heroes. Mm -hmm. And then she kind of presented a case and she was extremely transparent. She said, this is why I made this mistake. This is exactly what happened. This was a human error. And she's now, you know, facing prison time and everything else. And, you know, it kind of gets back to like, this book would sort of lead you to believe that with a few wise words from dad, Marie Grace was like ready to go as a nurse, which is not true. It's not true. But at the same time, it's like, I was kind of reading this thinking, well, why couldn't she be a nurse? Like, obviously that should not have happened. She's nine years old, like for a slew of reasons that should not have happened. And we covered in past episodes how Louisiana was the only southern state that had licensure laws for physicians in this period. So Dr. Tad actually did have to show something at some point to prove that he was a doctor. Now, what that was, we can't say. But for nurses, how would you actually distinguish in this period between if you show up and say, hi, I'm a nurse, I'm here to, to care for you, what is the dividing point between saying, like, you're not a nurse or, oh, you are a nurse? I would say basically none. I mean, Louisa May Alcott goes from complaining about her family to being a nurse like 10 steps from the front line. So almost nothing. But I think that's part of why Florence Nightingale still looms so large is because she's an easy point in a timeline to look at to say, this is where there's a shift towards something different. This is where Mm -hmm. not just anyone can show up and decide that they're going to take this mantle on. That said, like part of why I'm having this conversation is I just don't feel confident that Thaddeus brings any knowledge whatsoever. You have a lot of skepticism about his skills and what he can actually heal. Yeah, I think that's I do. I feel like we are one malpractice case away from him and Luke having to escape on that steamboat, never to be seen again. And Sister Beatrice saying, I knew it. I think that's- I told you so. I think that's absolutely true. And I think a lot of this kind of comes back to me to like how enshrined masculinity is, but also white supremacy is in the development of these professions. If you really drill down, like, I mean, we're gonna get nursing as a profession like confidently by the 1870s. We're going to get social work confidently by the early 20th century, psychiatric social work by the 1910s. And what all of those things have in common is it was mainly elite white women in nursing, social work, and and nutrition, and so on, some others, who were basically like, and we are in charge of this now, and we are creating a degree program, and we're going to tell you how to live. Like in the case of social workers coming into your house and being the first line of defense to prevent pandemics or epidemic spreads Mm -hmm. of things like tuberculosis. And all of that is like expertise invested in yourself as an expert. And like Dr. Tad's doing that and no one's really batting an eye because, you know, it's accepted by that point that like a man as a doctor is a respected profession. No one's asking where he went to med school in these books. No one's saying like, where are you licensed? 
But with nursing, I think there's greater skepticism. Like, well, how do you actually prove that you're a nurse? Yeah. Well, I mean, even with Mademoiselle, right, we don't know that she has any training beyond what's been taught to her about how to sing. We don't know that she has any training in terms of teaching. We're supposed to kind of take people and like their level of expertise as being self-evident, right? Like she says she is and she's proving it. Let's be real. Like I could reach out to someone and say, I don't know, let's sing Amazing Grace next, which is essentially her only play in this book. She is very ill. I'm just saying like I could come up with that too. I was once pressed with no notice, have I told you this, to play a public piano. I think I have told this story. They installed a public piano. The professional pianist dropped out. It was a um, like a grant-driven thing. And someone ran into my job and said, someone needs to play a piano in the next hour. Oh, my God. And I stood up and said, give oh, me yeah, 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, I remember minutes. this. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually played Amazing Grace on the piano. And wow. I was filmed, and I was the first person to play it. And then some, like, other person actually sat down and played John Legend, which made for a better photo op. (laughs) So I was erased completely from the narrative. And I was like, but you know what? When someone needed to step up, I did do it. You did that. Wow. That's impressive. I mean, yeah, I think, like, with Madame Ocean and everyone else, it's like it kind of speaks to that 19th century narrative about, like, the confidence man of someone who comes up and says, like, do you have confidence in me? Like, can I hold your watch? And then he runs away with it. And it's like, this is why, like, the the birth of the scammer, like, the confidence man. And, you know, Shonda might say it's actually feminism that Madame Ocean and maybe some nurses in New Orleans are presenting as things that they're not or they're claiming expertise maybe they can't prove or they don't have because, you know, that's feminism too. But I think it just shows like in a city with more and more people, with people who are strangers, you have to find other ways of authenticating your identity and your skill set because, you know, do you you know me, you have confidence in me is no longer going to play in a city full of strangers. So how do True. we all prove our education and ability to one another? And some of it's like performance, like Dr. Tad is sure performing that he's a doctor. I mean, I don't really know what's happening, but people in his world are like, oh, my God, this guy, amazing doctor. (laughs) We've never seen anything better. Armand's parents are like, he saved one of two patients in our house. He's got a 50% success rate. I recommend him on Yelp. Like, he's great. I don't know that they were really, this is just my opinion, don't take me to court over this, Ray family. I don't know how invested they were in Ellen's healing. I don't think anyone was. They were like her, like Arrested Development, like her. When she was like, cough, cough, I feel sick. They were like, huh, like we forgot you were here. Um, Sad to hear you're sick. I was shocked she was even brought up in this book because that's how little they cared. Here's what I think is going on with Mrs. Curtis. I think Mrs. Curtis is very moved by Manifest Destiny mm-hmm. rhetoric, number one. Sure. I think she knows about the acquisition of California. She's no fool. She's been following what's going on with the 48ers and the 49ers. Yep. She wants in. She's hearing rumors about the Gadsden purchase. Yep. She's hearing about Seattle. She's hearing about gender imbalances. And she's like, I can put some like product in my hair make myself look 10, 15 years younger, Mm -hmm. find a man who needs someone, work at a mining camp. I don't think she's above that. I think there's like a full reinvention happening. And I think she feels bad for Marie Grace, but she has to walk away. I think she's seeing a lot of tintype prints of people like John C. Fremont out west and even Franklin Pierce. And she's like, you know what? There's a world for me out here where like... (laughs) 
you know, like she's imagining Franklin Pierce writes her and is like, hey, girl, if yellow fever doesn't take you out, can I? And she's like, you know what? I'm a widow. Yeah. I still look great. No one ha- like I'm burning my birth certificate. No one will ever be able to prove how old I am. Like, I'm out of here. Bye. If Shonda was in this, Cecile would not be a central character. It would all be about the redemption of Lavinia. Yes. I think that that's, it would be about the redemption of Lavinia. I think that she would actually value the free person of color who's the nurse who comes in to actually um, care for Madame yeah. Ocean, off, who we never see really, um, other than a brief introduction. And because Shonda likes characters who are mobile and can take the audience into different scenes. So I think that would have been interesting to her. It would have been interesting to me. I really wanted to know more about her life and what went on. And it reminded me of my namesake, Allison. Like, if you Google my name, the person who comes up who deserves it is Mary Mahoney, the first black nurse in America. And she had to be a private nurse her whole life because of her race. Like, she was never allowed to have a position in a hospital. So I was thinking about her when, when this character was introduced. Like, oh, of course, she has to have private clients because of the racial politics of New Orleans, which, again, never comes into this book. No, we're kind of left um, to just sort of make our own assumptions about what's happening there. And I think there's a real tension in deciding to do this series this way, which is if you make these two girls' worlds perfectly intertwined, you're not telling the truth. Right. But you're also kind of missing certain things by the way that you present their points of connection. I'll just say, too, like, for a very different snapshot of this moment, Solomon Northrup's 12 Years a Slave came out Mm. in this year. So this would have been of their time. He would have been recently self-liberated and had been writing and publishing this book um, in 1853. What a very different perspective on what life can be, Mm -hmm. right? Like an actual documented experience of how precarious life could be for someone like Armand, especially. Absolutely. And like talk about having the confidence manner having to prove yourself. Like we never see like after grandpa being accosted by those two guys, like in the the heightened pandemic or like the tension and probably in New Orleans, like there is no further attack or like threat or like force to prove their freedom that we've seen. Like there's no there's no moment of tension like that. But you know, I was also, you know, speaking of moments of tension, like, you know, we do hear Marie Grace say that when she's, she's been learning American Amazing Grace, but she can't hit that note. Yes. And then she basically volunteers or is volunteered to sing it in their wedding at the end of the book. And I'm like, girl, w- there's no description that Madame Ocean, <laughs> as a recovered woman, has like actually helped, no. like spend some time trying to tune her. No. To hit that note in the wedding. <laughs> so she's like, I'm afraid I'm not going to hit that note. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And frankly, you're not going to hit the note. And no one's helping you hit that note. It's not a sweet sound. I want to ask you, I was doing some side research on what other fun things you could get with these characters. And for our next episode, I'm going to talk a bit about their supplemental books, which have fascinating titles. But I want to present to you some of the options from Cecile and Marie Grace's um, Just for Fun kit. Okay. These are some of the games you can play, and I want you to just, like, speak out whenever something resonates with you. Mm -hmm. The first one is called Me and You. Okay. Second, Dominoes. Third, There's a Parrot in the Parlor. Wow. New Orleans Concentration. Uh Uh-oh. Word Race. Okay. Masquerade. Excuse me, Word Race. Marie Grace, may I? 
and making market board game. I'm scared of all of this. I don't think this is good. Like, I don't have any images in my head as you read those of like, this is gonna be filled with joy and laughter and make me feel good. It's like everything they're doing is like a double entendre yeah. threat. Okay, how about the things to make? Make a mask, handy. Okay. Bookmarks, you like that. Sure. Draw Argos. Okay. I've had worse times. Quote notes, that could be fun, very Bridgerton. Okay. Draw Kachan, who's the parrot. Ooh, okay. Make a paper chandelier. Wow. Okay. Make a storage box. Mm-hmm. Or make a pecan pie. I'd love to eat a pecan pie. Is that yeah. part of it? No. Okay. Their their treasure totes sound something honestly more scary than not. The puzzles, honestly, it's like <laughs> Papa's wise words. Like we've been in short supply yeah, of those, so those perhaps that would be helpful. Sticker Sudoku sounds fun. Okay. Call for a carriage. Not practical, but I would do it. Where's Argos? Why are we obsessing over the dog? I think it's like when there's not really interesting stuff happening with people, people are like, oh, my God, the dog. Like, (laughs) my God, have you seen this dog? I don't know. It's just it's telling to me that none of this is actually about the books. Like, tell me a moment in these books when a pecan pie was relevant or like important to the plot or a chandelier. When she's at the store. But that was pralines. Oh, gosh. Okay. So it's like, and where's a chandelier? maze? Philip's maze. That scares me. Yeah, no, thank you. So next time you can expect conversation about the hidden gold, the cameo necklace, and the haunted opera. Wow. Here's something I'm mourning. Here's something I'm mourning. Sarah Masters Bucky, who wrote these books close to a decade prior, wrote Gangsters at the Grand Atlantic. Okay. Synopsis. In 1925, after witnessing violent actions of gangsters, 12-year-old Emily accompanies her sister to a luxurious hotel on the Jersey Shore. She worries gangsters have come to the same hotel. What I'm saying is... Wow. I want Sarah Masters Bucky on the temperance era of the 19-teens into Prohibition Mm -hmm. more than I want her in the Commodore Perry potato chip era. I think that's fair. I mean, I'd love to see what she did with, like, Carrie Nation. You know, like, she writes a book and it's like, oh, my God, I'm, like, staying with my Aunt Carrie. You know, she said she's going to take me out for some cool, like, you know. Lemonade. Lemonade. And also some, like, casual destruction of saloons with an axe. You know, that might go somewhere for her. I don't know. We got talking about temperance at work yesterday, and someone turned to me and said, you're not going to talk about the temperance fountain during this event. And I turned right back to them, and I said, I'm not. Watch me. Wow. I have a replica Coldwater Army badge that I will put on so fast your head will spin. I mean, it would make you feel drunk, but that's not the point. (laughs) People don't care enough about the temperance movement. They don't, they don't, they don't know enough. They don't know about like the federal expansion of powers. Nobody asked. I mean, much like in the same way that there's very little communication between Marie Grace and her father, that's us in our dialogue about temperance. I hope that some of the American girls we've yet to explore would let us discuss that, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen for us. Like maybe. I mean, Rebecca's next. Rebecca's next. So that could actually happen for us. Oh my God. Wow speaking that into existence oprah style (laughs) yeah so we have one book left in this series and we're going back into cecile's world i have kept myself from reading the preview i want it to be a surprise but kind of hoping that we have a happy ending i mean yeah i would like that for them i don't know what that would look like that's the thing it's kind of like yeah 
I don't know. This is fraught. This whole series is fraught. But you know what? Walter Reed was born in 1851, so the happy ending for the yellow fever sufferers is not going to come for quite some time. It's really not. Um, the mosquitoes are going to keep winning this one, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. So if people can't leave you a message at the slate, like, is there another way they wow. should get in touch with you? You know, listen, I would love to hear about your favorite potato chips that maybe I'm sleeping oh. on at my Instagram, at Mimi Mahoney. Or my Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. I'm remembering there was like a brand called like Onita. That's not right. But something mm. like that. That was great, but they don't make them anymore. So anyway, I'm open to any and all suggestions. People write to me and they suggest all kinds of stuff and I'm always listening. So thank you. Allison, if people want to talk about temperance, they want to throw oh. some cold water on the situation, where might they be in touch? You can talk to me about temperance, about my Doritos habits, about any one of those things at Allison Horrocks on Twitter or Instagram. You can leave us a figurative slate message on our telephone line, which is monitored, but we don't answer. You can also send us an email, fill out our speak to us, tell your story form. We do also look at all of our DMs, including the ones that our sugar baby requests. We wow. read it all. So send us an email, drop us a line. We're a girl's pod on Twitter and American Girls Podcast on just about everything else. And now that I'll remember the voicemails exist, if you leave us a question someday when we do another mailbag, maybe we'll play your call. So yes feel free yes. and allison do you want to share what we're doing on patreon this month or april i should say yes i would love to so as you mentioned we just finished up with midwife's apprentice which was a cushman book that we really really enjoyed for april 2022 we are talking about highlights magazine so like you be goofus i'll be gallant or other way around i wow. don't remember if both of them were toxic or just one We'll be reading a book written by people who worked for Highlights Magazine, what they learned from letters written into it. So even if you're not able to get your hands on that, we'll be reading some selections and talking about our memories of Highlights. I'm very excited for this. It's going to be very fun. Me too. And hopefully maybe we'll do a watch along. We'll do something and uh, love to talk to people on the Discord. Really appreciate this really fun and very kind community. So thanks to all who have joined us there and all who might join us there. And we will see you on our next episode.